I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey guys, it's Candice. And Kayla, and we are Directionally Challenged. Yeah, we thought we would have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s. But surprise, we don't. We don't. I just really <laughs> felt the need to in, to really push that we're in our 30s. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I feel like the last time you and I were speaking earlier this week, we were talking about like being in our 30s and, and the birthdays coming this year. And it just feels like early 30s. It's just like, well, you know, we're just like entering. It's just that, you know, we're just entering the climb of like aging. And then like, as the 30s go on, it's like, whoa, we're getting really high up here. Um, Do you like my tie in today? (laughs) I do. (laughs) We're talking about climbing mountains, um, which I don't have a lot of experience in beyond just like hiking a little bit here in California, um, which is not like climbing a mountain at all. Uh, Kayla, you know more about climbing mountains from your dad. Right. My, not stud of a father. My dad, he is a stud. I mean, I was four years old when my dad summoned the Matterhorn, not the ride at Disneyland, but the real mountain in uh, Switzerland. My sister was three. My mom was eight months pregnant with my brother. This was not the first mountain he had <sighs> climbed. He had done Kilimanjaro, Denali, 
a ton of huge mountains and he had a near death experience as he was climbing. He was he fell and was sliding down the mountain and there was one last overhang and he had the crampons on his boots, which are the little spikes. And he had one last chance and he jammed his ice axe into the side of the mountain, cramped on to the to, to the edge. And he said, as he's falling and sliding, all of his kids are going through his mind, his wife, everything that's at stake. And he survives. And so that was the last time he climbed. And K2 was next, then Everest on his list. And he decided to let the group go without him. On that specific climb, they did end up losing one of their team members. So he decided that's when I'm going to not do this anymore. And it's funny because you talk about mountaineering and mountain climbing and everyone thinks, wow, what a great feat. But I think sometimes we don't really know how difficult it is and how easily people lose their lives doing this. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to our guest today, Vanessa O'Brien. Would you ever want to like, was this ever anything then when your dad finally shared, like told you his kids about this climbing experiences? Was he ever like, honey, we got to go do Kilimanjaro one day or no? No, I I never wanted to do it because of his experiences. I think I heard firsthand how intense they were. And I never felt the urge to do this. I respect him so much. But, you know, growing up as a family, we would just go out to Joshua Tree and carabine into carabine each other onto this rope and just climb as a family and then rappel back down the cliffs. This was something we did all the time growing up. So even at a young age. So this was something that I grew up doing. I mean, you know, it's like a 2000 foot thing, not 18,000 feet or whatever. So it's not like we're not actually summoning big mountains, but it was a part of my life. But now, yeah, yeah. that's so interesting. My mom had a diving accident when she was um, when I was a little kid and uh, she ended up. um, I I remember when my parents got their scuba license because because they had been training in the pool and like getting all ready for this big trip they were going on. And and my mom ended up getting a faulty oxygen tank. And so when oh. she was at the bottom, um, and, and I don't know like how far down she was, but essentially when she inhaled, it was only water. And no. so she had to rush up, which you're not supposed to do right. is like rush up and she ruptured her ears or uh-huh. I just remember at a young age, it was obviously something with her ears and um, just the pain that she was in for so long after that. And she didn't want to dive anymore after that because I mean, of that like terrifying incident. And so as an adult, I have zero interest in diving. Like I, I don't need to go down to the depths. I don't need to hang out with the fish and like swim with a shark. Like I, I just, I don't need to do it. I'll snorkel on top and just <laughs> wave to you all down below, which is why I think it's so interesting to talk with anyone who has, you know, even just hearing about your dad, who's climbed all these, you know, incredible feats of mountains. And then to even be talking with our guest today, who has been to the depths of our oceans. I find it so, you know, the idea of even wanting to do those things is so interesting to me. I love that your dad has done this. Like he's already like such a, I feel like every time I hear about your dad, he's like some character in a novel that I just want to be like, and then what did he do? He was like this like stud of a like actor, commercial actor in LA, you know, like Mr. California dreaming. And like now is also like climbed all these mountains. I love your dad. He's definitely, my dad is definitely one of my heroes for sure. I've learned so much from him in life. 
And you guys, we have so much to learn from our hero that we're talking to today. We are sitting down with Vanessa O'Brien. She is a British and American mountaineer explorer, aquanaut author, former business executive. She's climbed to the highest peak on every continent and has a Guinness world record for doing so in 295 days, setting a record for the fastest time a woman has ever achieved this goal. She also became the first woman to reach Earth's highest and lowest points, receiving a Guinness world record for that. She became the first American woman to climb K2 and the first British woman to climb K2, result of her dual nationality. Vanessa O'Brien has also skied at the last 60 nautical miles of the South Pole and North Pole, completing the Explorer's Grand Slam in 11 months, becoming the first woman to do so in under a calendar year. And she's the eighth woman in the world to accomplish this. She also has a new book titled To the Greatest Heights, Facing Danger, Finding Humility, and Climbing a Mountaining of Truth available everywhere now. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Vanessa O'Brien. Vanessa O'Brien, we are so excited to be with you today. I mean, what a fascinating life that you have. Um, To be the first and only woman to have reached the planet's highest peak and lowest depth. Um, But in order to get the full picture, we really want to start at the beginning of your professional career. You had an incredibly successful banking job, then the recession hits and you end up losing it. Now, instead of letting this define you, you decide there's more to life than climbing the corporate ladder and you decide I'm going to climb Mount Everest instead. (laughs) Uh, We always discuss on this podcast pivotal life moments, and this is definitely one of them. So, I mean, this is the stuff you read about in books and uh, daydream about. So talk to us. What made you make this pivotal life decision to completely transform the trajectory of your life? Yeah, it's a great question. And I and really, it's one of the reasons to write the book. Um, and one of the reasons even to read books, it's, it's you look for these like gems. And when they happen to you, it's it's one of the things you want to share. You don't you don't always need a catalyst, but catalysts help because they they push you into different directions. Hong Kong, I was in Hong Kong at the time. And Hong Kong was a wonderful place to be. Because it was foreign. And I don't mean that to be sort of laughing foreign, but, you know, English wasn't the first language. You know, it was Cantonese, not even Mandarin. But but there were some things that were, were familiar. So the Chinese work ethic was very much like what I would call like Bonfire of the Vanities 80s. For example, um, the Chinese really liked to work hard and they valued um, success and they valued money and they valued, um, they were willing to work long hours uh, to get those things. So they didn't want it to come to them free and handed on a platter. They were willing to work really hard for those things, but that's what they valued. And uh, that would have been great if I too was working, but I wasn't working for the first time. And so here I was in this, um, you know, interesting place when the recession hit and I found myself sort of for the first time I say for the first time not working and that's sort of true from the age of 15 I always had at least a babysitting job or you know um, running newspapers or doing something right so for the first time here I was in Hong Kong without a job and here all these people value jobs so much and there was sort of an existential crisis and it made me realize like a type a person can't really do nothing And that's when I really start thinking, what am I going to do? I can't sit at home. 
So there's a couple of things that come together at this moment. And for people who have been in this situation, it's interesting. You really need to take stock of all these things that happen to you. So the first thing is that I can't find my tribe. And this is really important because there's lots of different people, but I'm not, I'm not fitting in perfectly mm-hmm. because I, I, I don't have children and there's a lot of expats. So there's a lot of, um, you know, Westerners who, who with stay at home moms who look after the children. But the problem with somebody who came, who worked, you know, their way up a corporate ladder is if you try to befriend a mom, their attention spans aren't there because they're always like busy yelling at the children while they're right. talking to yes. you. And, and that's really annoying. <laughs> it's so true. It's annoying you know, for the moms like, too. <laughs> we recognize it too. Correct. <laughs> I'm really both parties suffer. Absolutely. Right. But you know, you can, you can only have so many of those where it does your head and you're like, Oh, if, if they're going to constantly yell at like little Sue or little Bobby or whatever, it's like, ah, right. Uh-huh. And, and then there were like the, the ladies who, who would go play tennis, say, and then go finish off a bottle of wine, like at lunch. And I thought, wow, well, um, that's interesting, but that's like a slippery slope. Like right. I could just see like alcoholism, like piling up. And I was like, well, I don't really want to do that either. So there was that. And then, you know, the, the, the women who work, the problem with Hong Kong is it's such a, um, you know, it serves so many uh, territories that they would get on a plane and kind of go away for two weeks, you know, hitting all these different markets and they wouldn't come back and you'd sort of forget, wait, when was the last time we talked and trying to make times to get together or whatever would be very hard to do that with, with the women who worked. So it was, it was just an interesting place. So, so one is the can't find the tribe, which is uh, feeding into this, this, uh, what am I going to do? And then the next thing is taking stock of, okay, what, what are you good at? And, and what, um, what do you need to feel like a sense of purpose or a goal? And, um, and that's when I started making lists and the lists were really interesting because I knew I needed to do something. And the first things on your list are not going to always be the right thing. So my first thing was like, okay, well, maybe I should cure malaria. And that's why in the book, people are like, uh, well, that might be noble, but really isn't that better left to like Bill Gates? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, actually it it probably is. You know, I probably can't really do that in two to three years and really find my piece of that puzzle. You know, what what is little me going to do for that? Or if I, let's say like I'm in Asia now, there's uh, antioxidants and some, you know, exotic fruits, maybe I could do like a a fantastic, you know, facial cream or moisturizer or something like that, Um, you know, discover something like that. But then there's product packaging, there's um, shelf life, and there's all these like, you know, things that I would have to, you know, find out about. So everything came across like some barrier to market. And that's when somebody just said Everest, and it was like the penny dropped, It, it ricocheted off the floor, and it bounced. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, Everest, 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 and it kept echoing in my head. And I was like, where is it? How high is it? Um, You know, it was vaguely familiar, like, yes, of course, in 1953, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgate did this, but it was being done today as well. What I didn't know was whether I could do it and whether I would be any good at it or even like it. And I think that was the difference was I didn't say, oh, no, I can't. I said, climbing is a skill and therefore it could be learned and taught. 
And that's, I think, where the difference probably was coming from a business background was I was I didn't shy away because I saw it as a skill. Well, right. And you, so you talk about saying, no, I can't. And that really came into play because you didn't summit the mountain until your third attempt, right? The first time you made it to 18,000 feet and then due to altitude sickness, had to go back down. Second time you made it further. Third time, you, so you kept having to say to yourself, I, I can do this. Talk to us about what that's like and the perseverance of that, because if if I'm taking this experience personally, I think, well, I made it 18,000 feet. That's great. I'm good. Now I can just say I, I somewhat climbed Mount Everest. But no, you had to make it to the top. What is that experience like? So, so yeah, this two tries on Everest and three on K2, the second highest. Now, so what, what happened with So initially it was just Everest. That's all I wanted was okay. Everest. And I'd never thought of climbing anything else. Um because I thought, look, you know, the economy is just in a tailspin. If I find something to do for two to three years, you know, I'll sort myself out and go back to work. Huh. So really, I was looking for something wrongly. I had I, I was looking for a goal. And later, I realized that I realized two things were wrong. One was the goal was not the summit. That's like you, you realize that you have to get down. So the goal is really round trip, right? Because mm. 85% of the deaths happen on descent. So, you know, you have to get down. But really, a goal is is great, but it's what comes after that. And that's why I think a lot of people who uh, maybe have success early in Silicon Valley, or if you've ever seen people um, have really early success early in their life, they, they sort of freak out because it's like, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. I've been successful. And there's like PTSD around that. And they, they don't really ever find a sense of purpose, which I like better than a goal because it's more of a continuum and a longer mm-hmm. line. And it takes a little bit longer to figure out what a sense of purpose is rather than a goal, which is like, okay, great. From A to B conquered, done, check mark. Right. Yeah. A sense of purpose it's more complicated. It's easy for your sense of identity to get wrapped up in this idea of accomplishing this one goal in your life. And when you can realize, oh, that's not your identity. That's just something that you're doing. And exactly like the heart of the, of the purpose. May I ask how old you were when you decided to take this on, to take on Everest? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I love, I, I stood at the top of Everest, I want to say at the age of 46 or seven, something like that. And one of the recent quotes that came by, came past me was from a writer who said she defied like, you know, age, trauma, you know, uh, basically she had like three things and she was like, none of it mattered. And, and what I like about it is you know, you don't have to wear that stuff if it doesn't work for you. In other words, besides the cliche of, you know, 30 is the new 20, 40 is the new 30, 50 is the new 40, right? Everybody goes back 10. The reality is people had always climbed the 8,000 meter peaks or 26,000 feet when they were older, simply because it took six to eight weeks to summit. And the only people who could really afford to do that were people who could take time off. Mm. And if you think about that, like a job isn't really going to give you two months off in a normal pre-COVID, you know, sort of environment where you were working. And, you know, it's like, what do you get two weeks off, a month off with tenure? 
you know, yeah. nobody could just say, hey, see ya. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- people were generally older when they did this anyway. But what I really liked recently is I saw some my some of my early relatives who came through um, Ellis Island. And the first uh, gentleman who came was 45 years old. And I thought, wow, here's the earliest explorer who comes from Austria-Hungary, right? No longer exists. And he's come over at 45 to start. And here, that would have, se- that would have seemed old. 45 would have seemed old. Because he was a manual laborer in coal mines. But here at 47, what, two, two generations later, somebody's at the top of Everest. Mm-hmm. And I love that because it really shows like, you know, how generations have changed, not only in education demands, but also just in, in their capability to uh, take exploration in a little different direction. Right. We uh, when you your PR team first reached out, Candace and I were so excited because we find this idea of exploration, the modern day explorer so fascinating. Can you take us through what a day in the life is on the mountain, whether it's K2, Everest, any of the mountains, because this is so foreign for most of us and most of our listeners. What is a normal day like? How much does your pack weigh that you're carrying on your back? What's inside it? Because I imagine there's a weight limit. And also, I'm fascinated to know about the food regimen, because that seems like a conundrum, having to rely on food for energy, but only be able to to fit so much in your pack. Yeah. Lay it on us. No, no, absolutely. So, so, um, okay. So let's do two typical days. Let's do like a day when you're, because there's a lot of downtime because of weather. So, Mm. so much. The reason it's four, the reason it's six to eight weeks is because you need to acclimatize to climb high, sleep low, climb high, sleep low, climb high, sleep low. And in the sending way, because your body builds red blood cells, which carry more oxygen. So this into thin air crack hour, you know, um, nomenclature is simply saying that where you where oxygen is perceived to be at a deficit, your body is compensating for it by changing its chemistry, its biochemistry by having more oxygen rich cells. But it does it naturally. So now a, a boring day where your 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 weather reasons round you at base camp. Um, you could have uh, it's it's like either chores. And chores are like laundry, right? So laundry builds up because let's face it, you're wearing something every day, right? And I imagine you're really sweaty. You you do and sweat smelly. And, yeah, even though it's cold and you are sleeping outside, there's no heat or anything like that. The reality is that if you, if you sweat, you know, your at least your base layer is going to to get it. You know, maybe your top layers are are okay, but you know, you certainly your under under base layers have to be washed. And so it it accumulates more than you think it does, right? You, even a week at home, you're like, huh, what is this bag, right? How did it get here? You so know, how do you it, complete normal domestic chores on a mountain, 18,000 so, feet up? So you you hope that your cook is, is still in your fine graces, because what he'll do is he'll add some hot water to the freezing cold stream water and make it feasible for your hands to get in there. And then you have like either, uh, there's there's bars of soap that act like laundry or there's um, 
you don't really want to take detergent that's from here because it's um, it's too bulky. But there's bars of soap that act as laundry. Those are usually the best. Or there's um, some concentrates that you can put in. But um, you 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 have to like the old days in a way when when they used to run it through those old uh, you know wheels and stuff. But you have to you know kind of get in there and move it around and let it soak a little bit and then make sure all the suds are out. And that's just, that's like a chore day. Um, if it were a fun day, you might uh, get the rest of the uh, crew together and see, you don't go for walks or stuff. Cause that's like, that's work. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like, Hey, let's go for a walk. Everybody'd be like, you know, no way. Um, but you might uh, have a movie night. You might play cards. You might play. There's lots, lots of games. You know. What? How do you have a movie night? What is that? So, there's, um, not, there's not Wi-Fi, right? There is Wi-Fi, but oh. what happens is it is we're not streaming the films. The films are downloaded on um, PC, like laptops, or they're downloaded on uh, iPads. And so we can we sh we either just show them on the iPad, you know, everybody gathered around. All twelve of you huddled around a tiny Correct. iPad. Actually, that's the easiest. Occasionally, there's tiny, tiny little things that will project, but that does take up more uh, power. And so you need uh, like generators or solar power or backup uh, stored battery uh, to use that. Solar's okay, but there's a lot of cloudy days. So there's plenty of film nights. You could have a film night almost every night. So when you say downtime, is this two weeks of downtime as your body's acclimating? Is it a few days? So it is, uh, it's dispersed throughout the six weeks. And usually it's weather related because you wouldn't choose to do nothing. You, right. would, you would do it only if it was part of an acclimatization, like you just got down and you're, you're giving yourself another day or two to recuperate. Or weather comes in and it just, weather can come in and trap you for a week. And those are the worst. Because psychologically what happens is if weather traps you for a week and say you're three-fifths of the way in, people will start to get really discouraged. And they'll say, oh, you know, they'll see avalanches come down or they'll, um, they'll look at the weather reports and they all look really, really bad and people will start to psychologically check out. And once they start doing that, they can even make themselves sick, interestingly mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. And once that starts happening, you start to lose people. And I, I mean, mentally lose them because it's, if you're not really there and you don't really want it, you can't possibly put yourself through the, the amount of work that you have to do going forward. Well, it sounds like you've obviously not only done the amount of work in order to move forward on that initial climb of Everest, but it, that that was what started it all. I mean, you would go on to climb many a mountain after you accomplished Everest. What then made you go, oh, no, 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 this is I, I have to keep doing this, you know, as opposed to like, OK, I did it. I've climbed Everest. I'm good, guys. Now it's time to get back into the banking world and, and get into a normal day-to-day -day life. When did you go, oh, no, 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 This I have to continue this new path? So Everest was, was interesting for me because I thought, you know, the goal was just Everest. So that should have been it. But there was initial failure and Everest was... Um, I, think, I think what if, if I look at it uh, holistically... I think I went into Everest thinking, okay, you know, I, I've had a lot of success in business. I've worked for, you know, these great companies. If I have the technical stuff down, what's the big deal? But hmm. 
the, the real crux is I think in business, you are taught to always be in control. And the problem is in nature, you can never always be in control. And it's a beautiful thing because I, I almost feel like everybody needs to have this experience. It wasn't even my book that really brought it out. It was another book that talked about my experience, but what, just where my ego just kind of cracks open and it's like, you know, all my, all the sort of principles that I had learned in the past were just, they, they just didn't apply. I had to, I had to retrain, retool, rethink, read everything to survive in nature. But, but initially I wasn't listening and I was, I was just kind of doing it. And it wasn't until it was like failing that I just turned around and I listened and it was like a film playing backwards and I could see myself making all the mistakes. And I was like, wow. That's what it that's what it's all about. So is this the moment that you go from having a goal to then feeling like, oh, this is more of a purpose? Is that that moment for you? It, it opens the door for a, a, a bigger understanding. It was like the mountain was teaching me patience and it was teaching me um, to focus on what I could control versus what I could not control. And they were so important but in the beginning, I was so too sort of uh, narrow-minded to be open to that feedback. And later on, when I, when I was listening or more intuitively sensing all this information coming back, I was like, wow, this is so intense. Why didn't I see this before? And it made me a much better climber. If I, didn't, if I hadn't had the initial failures, especially with Everest, I, I don't think I would have been... So, as good of a mountaineer later because I would never have picked up on the on these sort of uh I don't know I'll call them um, physical mental spiritual you know all these other aspects of it that I think all fit together that made it work I definitely want to get into the life lessons and the parallels about what you learn climbing a mountain and what we learn just you know climbing in the journey of life as we like to call it um but just for our listeners because not I, I really want them to get the full scope of of what you would go on to accomplish as a climber and an explorer can you explain to our listeners what the grand slam is because yeah, that sure. is such a cool accomplishment to me it's the highest peak on every continent and uh, there are two lists unfortunately so i would say there's seven continents and therefore seven peaks but um, two mountaineers disagreed on australasia oceana so mesner chose the only rock climbing in the seven summits uh, dick bass who did the original seven summits chose australia so there's actually eight seven summits so that just complicates things, but you can't really say that has peak on every continent because some people think there's seven, there's really eight. Um, then there's the North and South Pole if you do the Explorer's Grand Slam uh, versus the Seven Summits. So you could do the Seven Summits and just st stick with the highest peak on every continent, or you could do the Explorer's Grand Slam and add the North and South Poles. And um, so that's what I did. Starting with, starting with Everest. Now, so I guess I started with Everest because for me, that's the only thing that I wanted initially. And I failed the first time because I had been to Kilimanjaro. And um, Kilimanjaro, I did just for, you know, fun, like a normal holiday. Um, and just for fun, fun, normal holiday. Let's climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I wanted to do that. My husband was like, that's a serious climb. I was like, well, I hike Fryman in California, you know? And so I think <laughs> I, that's a serious climb. 
Like, I know you're <laughs> saying it's like casually on holiday, but you obviously like fit and prepared and ready to take on Kilimanjaro. So, so, you know, people tend to start with Kilimanjaro. I'll tell you 50% of the park statistics in Kilimanjaro are failure because okay. people think it's so easy and it's just a walk and it's the only one of the seven summits that doesn't require any kit, like, you know, helmets or, okay. or you know, a, a, a belt or crampons or anything like that, a harness. So because of that, people think, oh, I can just do it. And they don't really give it the... Um, the attention it deserves, especially around acclimatization. The point is, it's just under 20,000 feet. It's high. You know, if they don't give it the full week of, you know, climb high, sleep low, climb high, sleep low of, of the acclimatization. And so people tend to get the acute, acute mountain sickness. So it could be anything from um, dizziness and headaches and, um, you know, low energy. Uh, sometimes they'll get diarrhea and some of the other things. So it, it can be a tough mountain uh, for sure. But the fact is, it's that high, which is higher than Everest Base Camp. So Everest Base Camp is also a trek. And that made it difficult for me when I was, after I learned how to climb with technical climbing stuff, because the way they sold Everest was Base Camp, Camp 2, or the summit. So if I only wanted Everest, I had already been higher than Base Camp. I was not yet ready for the summit. That's why I chose Camp 2. And that's when I realized, like, whoa, Camp 2, even though I had been higher, I was so outside of my uh, zone, even for the small amount, this 2,000 more feet or whatever, because that was the Kumbu Ice Ball, one of the most dangerous places, is right out of base camp with the shifting mm -hmm. uh, three-dimensional towering the ice rocks and everything else. And so that's, I, I ended up in a sort of an ice ball avalanche on my first try up to camp two. And that's, that, that was wow. part of my failure. So, and, and in an ice fall, there's very little things you can do to save yourself. Like most will say self arrest, which is where you take your ice axe and throw it into, you know, the, the mountain, mountain and, and sort of, you know, get into a position to start start to prepare for anything that comes over you like uh, ice and snow. But in, a, in an ice fall, you can't because this is where all the ladders lie horizontal, big towering buildings, wide crevasses. You know, it's, it's just hazards everywhere. So it, anyway, that was, that was um, an interesting experience. But what I did do after that failure was really learn, eat a, a huge amount of humble pie, learn about what I did wrong, and then from there immediately start training to do Everest properly, which was to go to other peaks over 26,000 feet, two of them back to back. So by the time I came back to Everest, I was probably the one on the team who had had the most experience with high altitude, which is great. And then seven summits happened actually, I didn't decide on that until I summited, literally summited Everest. And I realized look, the economy is not really back two of my people on Everest were going right to Denali and then mm. all the trips were booked and I sort of panicked because how was I going to get to Denali? And I called up the, the guy that somebody referred me to and he was like, no, nope, come on, we'll take you. Wow. Like, oh, oh, all right. Cool. Game on. Game on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't even think I had time to like, you know, one more wash of clothes, right? You know, that's but like, I think that's how sometimes the best moments in life are made. It's like, okay, no, I'm good. Like it's the opportunity is presenting itself. I'm going to lean in. And, you know, it is in kind of in reference to what you were talking about earlier, like letting go of the ego and, you know, and listening to the environment around you as opposed to trying to control everything happening in your life. And so obviously, you know, you listened, you heard a calling, you were open to this, you, you learned from, you know, I, I'm, you keep repeating this kind of climbing terminology that I've not heard before, but I think is like something I'm going to hold on to climb high, sleep low. You know, I refer to it sometimes. It sounds like a 10 steps forward, you know, eight steps back. And, but that's actually positive. That's how you continue to move forward. It's not just a climb. You have to be, you know, if we've learned anything on this podcast, you have to learn from your failures. That's actually your growing period. That's in it, in this resting period. That's how I think I'm going to, what I'm going to take from this conversation, this beautiful sleep low, this rest period. So you can be prepared for the next part of the climb, um, which you would go on to continue climbing and climbing and climbing and then diving to the depths and the like farthest, most bottom part of the world, um, which is a whole other thing to take on. And my only reference is watching Titanic when like Rose goes with like the crew to find the Titanic. And that's enough to like freak me out. What is the mindset to be and what is it called the little sea mobile that you are in? Um, and you are traveling like four hours down below into the water. What inspired you to then take on that adventure? Yeah, absolutely. Let me say one thing, because you touched on failure. What what the mountains taught me, um, and this was more on K2, because it took me three three consecutive years to summit the second highest mountain in the world, and all the other mountains I was able to do, except that very first time with Everest, the first time, right? So, you know, whatever, however many there are, let's let's call it, you know, 12, 12, 13, 14 mountains. I, I did them all once, you know, got to the summit, you know, there's always, you know, kind of success, except that very first time on Everest and then the very last mountain, right? K2 took me three consecutive years. I started to realize like that failure is an interesting word because it's one that we put on ourselves and it's sometimes things, it's sometimes labels that other people um, give to us, especially with social media. And then what I started to look at was failure is is very important in some situations. Nature can be one of them because failure gives you data points. Like, uh, so we're climbing mountains, we go camp one, two, three, four, and then summit. But no matter what you do, you're always gathering information. So even if you fail one year, you have gathered a lot of information. Going back a second year, again, you gather a lot of information. What I started to realize is that you don't really fail unless you give up. And the reason I love that is because nobody really ever says it in those terms. They just say, oh, I've, I failed. And then they assume that they're out. But, but if they looked at failure as just a data point, instead of a continuum where it's like, nope, I'm, I'm never out until I say I'm out. That would be a different mindset, and I think it would make people stronger. Because that's what mm. K two taught me was that three consecutive years, people were were yelling failure all over me, and I was like, "You and women kept handing that flag back to me. 
know, saying mm. you're going to bring it to the top. And I was like, wow, you know, okay. You know, it's, it's like, you, you're not, you're not out until you give up. And I love that. K2, even though it's the second highest mountain on earth, it is known as the Savage Mountain. So I, I completely understand why you'd probably want to save that for last. Yeah. George Bell, um, a climber on a 1953 American expedition, told reporters, it's a savage mountain that tries to kill you. And so <laughs> I had not really heard much about K2. No one, I like to me, obviously I've heard about Everest and like, that's like the mountain to climb. Um, but now researching K2 for every four that summit K2, one dies. And you knew that going into climbing this mountain, did you at any point think, okay, I've gone too far in this pivot of life. (laughs) You know, I've, I've climbed all these mountains, maybe this one, I just, you know, maybe I'll just save that one for later. You know, what was that driving force? It was like, no, I'm going to conquer K2, even if it keeps knocking me down on my ass, I'm going to get up there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's a slight difference between courage and bravery. It's like courage is when you know that you do something knowing the risks, despite the risks and bravery. You don't really understand the risks and you just do it. So there, which one were you? Well, I knew the risks more courageous. And I've seen the video where George Bell says that when he comes off in 53, it was an interesting uh, time. He had a lot of frostbite when the reporters asked, asked him that. And they had just lost Art Gilkey, one of their um, climbers that would go on to build the Gilkey Memorial, which now holds almost, I don't know, 90, less than 95 people uh, who have died overall. It was a horrible, horrible climb, but they almost made it. The Americans really should have been the first to summit K2. They tried uh, three consecutive years, 1938, 39, and 50. Three, the year Everest was summited by Tenzin and Hillary, they were up there same year. And they heard the news that Everest was taken. And that's why there was so much pressure for them, for the Americans to get K2, that what you're referring to took place. They were almost almost at the top. They only turned around because of the, the death of Art Gilkey and uh, the frostbite of the teams. How much of the success is physical and how much of it is mental? And do you, how do you handle it when you're in the middle of a climb and they're at odds with each other? It's a personal opinion based on how much is mental and how much is physical. I I just talked to Peter Hillary, the son of Sir Edmund Hillary, and he, he was saying he thought it was much more mental than people would say it is. Like he'd say almost 90% mental. The problem Mm. is it looks so physical, right? You see all these people like in this gear and they're on that mountain and they, you know, one step, five breaths, one step, five breaths. It just looks so physical. But the problem is you're not moving very fast. There's a few technical things, but you're mostly walking for the most part uh, or hiking. Where it becomes more difficult is that you have to survive for a very, very long time in really terrible conditions. So this, you know, minus 40, you know, below zero, right? Fahrenheit. You've got the wind chill. Winds can go. I was just looking at the winds here, but the winds, this was 20 miles an hour up here today, but you know, winds in normal can be 40, 50, you know, just gushing at you with that wind chill factor is just unbearable. It is frostbite territory. You're hungry, you're thirsty, you're probably standing up there for 16 hours. You know, it's just so miserable and it's not human to do something that's that fights against survival like that. So most people have to push against the common sense side of you that says, what are you doing? 
you idiot, turn around. Mm -hmm. This isn't comfortable. This isn't nice. You know, do you want to die here? You know, so the common sense side of you is, is really asking you, what are you doing? So then after going through all this, talk to us about that epic life moment where you summit K2 and you become the first American and British woman to do yeah, so. Yeah, so there's there's the Hollywood version, which is always more amazing than, than being <laughs> on the life version. The Hollywood version. <laughs> which feels like there's this epic photo of you like holding the flag up and the triumph on your face is incredible. And I can yeah. imagine that that photo embodies yeah, yeah, the, the Hollywood, Hollywood version. Yeah, the Hollywood version is awesome. And we always have to start with that. That's when you get up to the top and, you know, there's like high fives, you got all the banners, you know, the, the, there's a bluebird day, you know, you've done it against the odds and, you know, cue the music and, you know, <laughs> the angels are singing and it's just everything that you've worked so hard for, you know, um, manifests itself. So that's great. The reality is you but... realize if you get up there, if you're lucky, there's no clouds and you can get a great view you realize like, oh shit, you know, I'm only halfway. Now I want to ask you like, in, in what sport do you ever celebrate something halfway? Like, would you celebrate stop halfway on a marathon? Woohoo! No, you, know? you never celebrate that you're ahead during Correct. halftime. Never. You know, it's almost like a curse, right? Like, like, you know, and this <laughs> is what the summit is. It's halfway, right? with 85% of us happening on descent. So it makes it, when you think of it that way, it's almost laughable because it's like, oh my God, you you can't really like cheer and celebrate yet because they're not down. And Mm. that is true to some extent. So yeah, so the, the reality is it's like, oh no, what do I have to do and get me out of here? And the problem why down is so much harder is yes, it takes effort. Of course, you have to pick up your leg. You have to move it and you have to pull your weight up. That sounds awful. But the problem with going down is your gravity's pushing you. So if it's slippery, you're going to slip and fall. You know, if it's steep, if it's, you know, if you've got a slope, if something, it's just so easy to make mistakes. You know, clipping, unclipping, you're trying to move fast. And, and it's just that whole gravity principle that's just asking you to, to make mistakes. Even if you put your, you, you got the spikes on your feet, but if you just push down more on your front toes, you know, that can push you a little bit more forward leaning. Um, it's, it's really tough. I, I, I absolutely understand why the accidents happen in descent. Which sounds a lot like in life when you've got a goal that you've set for yourself and you're like, okay, now I've done it or I'm here, I've arrived. Um, But then it's like, oh my gosh, now I have to continue this. I have to sustain this. I have to, like, I've got the corner office now. I have to keep the corner office or hit this goal that I wrote down on my checklist and I did it. Now, what do I do next? I mean, that it's very, it sounds like there's a lot of parallels in life of like what comes next and and sustaining. Um, Did you find that that is a lesson that you were taught on a lot of these descents? Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot that that happens on descent. In my mind, there was a really interesting descent on Everest where I get into a very interesting because I'm so used to that line and the queue going up and there's only one way down. And so I'm expecting a fight because there's there's only one way traffic and there's no rules of the road. There's no clear communications, there's no rules, there's no there's nothing that says who goes up, who goes down, who has the right of way. You know, more and more people on the on these routes, um, they all have different levels of experience. And then suddenly I'm, I'm with uh, the first 
Sherpa that ever took me on my first peak and I'm with his son and I get into this very odd maternal like instinct where it's like I have to save the son. He'd climbed Everest like eight times. There's absolutely, this is all in my head, right? He's going to be saving me, not the other way around. But in, in my mind, I'm like, I must get, you know, the Sherpa down, right? Because I'm leading on the way down. And I just suddenly, and this is like a business thing, but I, I just got in my head transfer risk because if people can't decide who gets what, it's because it's not clear who's getting or receiving what. And it's because you got oxygen stuff, you got goggles on, you got a headlamp. There's like no real estate. You can't communicate. Nobody can see each other. Everybody looks the same, right? So there's no way to talk. Are you t- you're talking about the how you guys are coming down and there's other teams coming same, up, correct? Same and there's a single single path, single line that you're going on. And so you ha- it's almost like traffic without a stoplight, right? Where you don't know what team is able to come down and what people's team is able yeah. to come up. I- am I getting that? But it, but sometimes it gets worse. Like if, you know, I've seen um, grown men like come and start fighting, like pushing each other and oh my yeah. God, right away. It's like, are you kidding? Like, Imagine two it's like people. a Trader Joe's parking lot on a Sunday afternoon, except you're on the top of Everest. Correct. <laughs> and you're not except in cars. <laughs> 40. Correct. Imagine like now you've got the testosterone like fueling and they're they're like now arguing over it. But I was like, you know what? There's it's, it's better wow. than that. Think about communications. What's gonna make you because because I could I you know, I'm a I'm a level-headed person. I can argue both ways. I can argue the person coming up should get the step because they haven't summited yet and they're knackered. I can argue the people coming down should get the step because they're moving faster and they have gravity. I mean, you give me a side and I'll, and I'll debate it. But forget all of that. Let's just use logic and let's use transfer of risk. So the one who takes the risk gets the step. So I'm just thinking, and I'm telling you this happened so quickly. I didn't even think about it beforehand. I'm just thinking, save the, save the Sherpa, right? And it dawns on me, because we can't communicate with the oxygen, with the huge goggles, with all this stuff on our heads, I had to, I had to signal. So we've got ropes. They're coming up, let's say, so their right hand's on their rope. I'm coming down, so my left hand's on the rope. So I would take my safety, my carabiner, off the rope and stick it in front of their face. What does that say? I'm unclipped. I'm taking the risk. I'm taking the step. I've just made a very bold move. Unclipped. I'm taking the step. So I'm stepping down. Sherpa's got my back of my jacket. Every single Mm -hmm. person completely understood what this was. They grabbed my hand, fed me around their jacket, helped me clip onto the rope behind them. Every single person. When you see somebody hold a carabiner in front of your face, it says they're not clipped. They need to be clipped. How are you going to clip them? Well, if I'm coming down and you're coming up, then I got to get behind you. So they would, mm-hmm. they would feed it around their jacket. And then how do you translis- translate this into life in like a lesson that you kind of held onto that maybe our listeners can take away from this? Like communicating clearly when you know that you need the right away or that you need help or you need someone to be part of your team, essentially. Yeah, I, well, first of all, I think women in general are, are better communicators overall. Like, you know, I think men would just barrel down. First of all, what I'm doing, everybody's doing anyway. 
What they're not doing is they're not stopping to show somebody why they're doing it and why they're taking the step. Because by doing that, I'm saying, I deserve the step, now help me. You know, everybody else is just doing it and they're barreling it down, but that seems aggressive. Like, why are you doing it when it, when it could have been mine? All I was doing is saying, why? You know, so it, whether it's verbal or not verbal, and by the way, sometimes when you're working with people who don't speak the same languages, you, don't, you can't always talk. So it doesn't matter whether we can talk or not talk. These are all different nationalities coming up. It's probably better that we don't talk. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, 
and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGED right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. back for the sake of time only because i want to make sure we get to you hitting the bottom of the mariana trench let's i mean you just have lived such a fascinating life we could talk about just one of your accomplishments for a whole podcast episode but so you you conquer k2 which is the final mountain that you do the on your third attempt and at this point you're not thinking wow i did it okay i'm just gonna put my feet up you decide to now get into a submarine and go to our earth's deepest point the bottom of the Mariana Trench. And you, I mean, talk to us about that experience, what it's like to get down to that bottom sea level and then to discover, you know, we thought it was always flat and now learning it's sloped. You've completely contributed to another environment. The first thing that I want to say is if somebody feels like they shouldn't do something because it's already been done, don't think that way because things are never the same. Everything was already climbed by the time I was born. You know, if I really thought I should never go to these places, I would never do anything. So I go to these places thinking, what can I contribute that would be different than the people who have been there in the past? So always keep an open mind. Don't let previous places that have been visited make you think you can't go. Climate change alone makes Mm. it a reason to go. I first learned about the, the Mariana Trench uh, by meeting the first person who had gone. And he was a great storyteller. And I thought, wow, you know, of course, I, I remember 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and stuff like this. And, you know, like <laughs> books. And of course, you know, all these sea monster stories and stuff like that. And, you know, I loved scuba diving, you know, water things. But I guess I never really appreciated how much the oceans were significant in our planet. You could look at the globe and say, okay, 71% is water. And you don't really ever think of it that way unless somebody really brings it to your attention. And if you look at uh, climate change and you start double clicking on some of those indicators, you start to see that maybe 50% of, of NASA's leading indicators tend to be water related, which is pretty scary. So a lot of the climate change things that they look at uh, are ocean related and Even um, when we talk about CO2, the oceans absorb up to 25% of the CO2. So they're actually a player even in helping absorbing carbon dioxide. When when I first looked at it, uh, the first person to go was in 1960. That submersible is is a submersible. There were two people in that. It went one time, one way, and never worked again. No. And that was the U.S. Navy. 52 years later... 52 years later, the second submersible was created. It went down one time, one way, never worked again. 
That's terrifying. That was 2012, and that was James Cameron, the producer director, right? Right. So it, it sort of tells you that it's not easy to get these submersibles to go down and up and down and up in a repetitive way. So I kept, I, I probably ended every interview after K2 in 2017 by saying I wanted to go to Challenger Deep Mariana Trench. And people said, yeah, 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 not really knowing what it was. But the point was, was there no, was no vehicle. I was saying I wanted to do something that didn't exist. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have fun with that. But then in 2019, somebody built one that went down. And I was like, oh my God, it exists. A vehicle exists. I was so excited. But what was great about this is I knew him. Meaning he what? had done the seven summits and the North and South Pole. So I reached out and I said, you did it. Does, does it work? Can it go down twice? <laughs> Yeah, because so far it's yes. only ever worked once, but you decide I'm just going to give it a go and maybe yeah, it'll and work it's again. Like, will you go down twice? Like, you know, and actually I knew it, his work more because he ended up doing like the five deeps. So he did not just the deepest, but he went and did these other deeps in other places. Uh, but his answer was no. He said no. He wasn't, yeah, he, he was done. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it was such, I was so gutted. But then, um, so 2012 comes around, and of course, the pandemic, which is awful for everybody. I got this uh, message from a Canadian submariner, a retired um, dolphin, as they call themselves. And he said, you really should call this guy because I think he's going to go back. And I was like, wow, are you running Intel? Like, <laughs> who are you? You know, this sort of guardian angel. And I, I did call. And he was right. And I don't think I would have received an outgoing call, but having placed an incoming call. And this is your friend who you contacted originally to see if he would go and he decided to go again. He decided to go again because there was a question about uh, some research that Cameron had done in 2012 versus some research he had. And there's only one person who could take the submersible down to prove who was right. So do you take the same submersible down? Yeah. Wow. Was there a moment where you're terrified thinking these usually go once and never work again? Is there a moment it's not going to work while I'm in it submerged thousands of feet deep? So, you know, I will tell you um, an obvious statement. Electricity <laughs> and water do not mix. <laughs> You, you know this from bathtubs, you know this from like, you know, when, how old were we right. when you first heard that statement? It's absolutely true. But now you have a big, huge, well, not even huge, right? It's a two-person sub, right? It, it is like sitting in a coach airplane seat side by side and just wrapping it in titanium. That's, that's as big as this thing is. It does take four hours to go down, four hours to come up. And we did survey um, the bottom to look for whether it was flat like a billiard table or whether it sloped. And we did find that it sloped. The one thing that you can always say is something will always go wrong. Whether it's a mountain, whether it's the sea, whether whatever it is, and something does go wrong when we're at the bottom, and that's that the batteries on the starboard side fail. I'm already sweating. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so now, now they have something. Mm -hmm. You have to remember we're under eight tons of pressure. So you can't even imagine what a TONS is 
people say 292 jump, jumbo jets. I think that's fantastic, but one jumbo jet would pretty much kill you, right? So you don't need the other 291. So what are you thinking at this moment? Well, interestingly enough, so they have something called watchdog. And watchdog is a noise that, that gets made every 15 minutes that you have to manually turn off. And it's there in case there's uh, like the CO2 scrubbers don't work or in case there's a transfer of gases. In other words, in case you were to pass out. And if you don't turn it off, it's sending a message to the machine saying, all right, uh, the pilot and the mission specialists have, have died or are unconscious. And so it immediately oh. sends the sub up. Now, after four hours, chances are you right. will no longer be alive because there would not be enough oxygen. But I will say this, when the, when the batteries on the starboard side don't work, my first thing was not to panic. My first thing was to troubleshoot. And this is probably more of a left brain person. But the first thing I thought of is, can the batteries on the port side work on the starboard side? In other words, can we borrow battery power? Because I'm not an, I'm not an engineer, but I have been stuck with electronic simple things on, on mountains. Mm -hmm. So can I borrow battery power? And the pilot wasn't sure, but it's, it's a good thought. The second is if we turn it off, will it recharge? This is just logical thinking. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. It's just like charging a car battery. It's Correct. like getting a, yeah, exactly. If you turn it off, will it recharge? And was there some other function of, you know, battery stored power somewhere else to refuel it or something? Anyway, it, it turns out that even if you can get power in, the thruster, which is the little round motor that each side has, port and starboard, it needs full power to move the little motor on each side. So you can't... My, my third thing, which was quite clever, was because we wanted to head in one direction, was just to program 180 degrees so that we use Smart. the port engine Smart. to continue in that direction. Yeah. So what did you end up doing? It was toward the end of the, the three hours. That's actually we should have been down there four hours. So that's why we came up in three hours. It should have been four, four, and four. And it and was you four, were able three, to still four. so that it can still function and go up and move around with just half. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we went up an hour earlier. But it's interesting that, you know, there's never really panic. And I think part of that panic is because I'm just busy troubleshooting. I'm at ease with the risks. I'm, ne I'm never really afraid of something like that. I was more afraid jumping off, off the edge of the ship into, you know, just the, the water. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's way more dangerous to me because it was the Western Pacific right, Ocean, right. huge waves. And it was, it was a big jump and, you know, stupid stuff like that. But the last thing I'll, I'll leave you with is just a, a, another philosophy, um, just for the readers, that I've also um, come upon just through the exploration is is that I find that people, people tend to be afraid to take, take steps in certain directions and they remain stuck where they are. But the reality is by taking that step forward in whatever direction, you can find out whether you like that step or you don't like that step. Um, it's important to at least take it and find out whether you like it or don't like it because you can always go back, but you, you never know if you're going somewhere better unless you move forward. I like to think people all have invisible backpacks on them and that's all the knowledge, skills and experience they've acquired throughout life. And that allows them to pivot and take these steps and say, okay, I'm better. 
mm, don't like it, move this way. I just want them always to remember the safety net of the invisible backpack because I feel that people sometimes remain trapped and they don't need to remain trapped. They need to think about mm. the invisible backpacks. I love that so much. And I love that you've decided to encapsulate all of the philosophies that you've learned on all of your adventures in your book, To the Greatest Heights. Um, I do have some really, I'm calling them ridiculous questions on exploring the world. If you don't mind, if I just toss them your way, um, feel free to roll your eyes at me. But these are genuine questions I have, and you do not have to have long answers. You can just keep it simple. Sorry, I can, I can be Christine Columbus. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, ridiculous questions on exploring the world. Um, do you use maps on your phone? Like, Do you have like a map that you're using? How do you not get lost? When you're climbing, the reality is, is once you once you are on a mountain, the mountains uh, we climb on ridges. So I'm I usually do that research beforehand. I'm not going to bother to take a map out of my phone and look at it because I don't have my hand free for that. If I'm traveling gotcha. on a glacier, I need I need my hands. Uh, probably. Oh man, because it's it's not easy climbing over something like a like a glacier, and I and I probably need both hands for that. But I will know roughly what the route is, and most of these routes, most of the mountains are pretty well laid out, and you're moving in a team. So follow the donkeys, follow the porters, follow the, you know, there's, there's plenty, if you can't see the path, it's pretty obvious where to go. Where I do tend to use these maps is more in local areas. Like if I, if I want to go an hour north and I want like the best hiking trails. Right. And okay, I good. So yeah, you are normal and use some maps yeah. sometimes. <laughs> that makes me feel better. Okay. Um, any scary animal encounters? Like do you carry bear spray around? Are there bears there? I would be worried about bears. Definitely no bears on at the bottom of the ocean. You never know, <laughs> Kayla. No one's been there before. So animals are always more afraid of you, uh, usually, than if you make noise and stuff like that. So uh, always rem remember that. But the one place where we did have to carry uh, flares and guns were the uh, North Pole was because um, as climate change comes in, the polar bears are struggling to find food and they are heading more and more north and more and more in unusual areas as their food source tends to wane over time. So that's the only time I've actually carried weapons or flares is, is the North Pole in the, in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. So bears, I was right. Bears, we should worry about them. Um, I would be so stressed. Does the whole group all chained together have to like watch you pee or when you have to go to the bathroom? Like in like how, I mean, if I go skiing, for instance, I get stressed all those layers that I have to take off, like just going to the bathroom. I can't imagine having to like be tethered to other people and be like, sorry guys, I got a 10-1, which on a set, if you're an actor, means that you have to pee and everyone knows about it. So do you guys have to do that on the mountain? Do you have pee stage fright? I would be, I'm already stressed thinking about it. <laughs> so uh, it depends where on the mountain. Sometimes you are roped together and it is hard to unrope. Good thing about, they do make devices for women, which is like a funnel with a tube. And what's nice about a funnel with a tube is you can store them in like a little plastic bag, put it in your pocket. It's, it's fine. But What's nice is it gives you the convenience to stand. What you need to be able to do is at least unbuckle and, and get the zipper done, you know, down so that you can get the, the at least the first part around. And then actually, it, all you really have to do is turn your back. Mm. 
it's actually okay. And if you if you can hold it during break, because people are going to break every hour or two anyway to go okay. you know, get something to drink or eat or something like that, then you can, you know, kind of at least, you know, maybe take a, a little bit more rope and go somewhere else. But in, in most cases, in most cases, you can manage. Perfect. In case I, for my Fryman hikes, you know, just really treacherous through like the neighborhoods of the Valley of California. So well, just because also, really strenuous. Well, remember, you want those in your tent at night too, because you don't want to get up right. and leave your tent and put on clothes and shoes and all that stuff. Right. So because bears back to the bear fear. Yes. We've all seen the aviator. You don't want to be Leonardo DiCaprio in the aviator. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of pee around a room and it just doesn't look good. And then just more like how do you celebrate? Like when you come, when you actually do come down, do you have something that's just that you do for yourself or you somewhere you go or, um, what, what is, I don't, I know you mentioned like not combining like drinking with exercise, but do you maybe at that point have a glass of wine or just like a, like something or dance to your favorite song? What do you do to celebrate after all these accomplishments? Usually the, uh, the first celebration is usually the, the base camp cook will somehow, and I have no idea how they pull this off, that they'll make a cake, which is amazing because you have a site and it's like, oh, I, baking at altitude is, ter- is like, how do they do that? I couldn't bake in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, I, I have no idea how they pull this off, but there is always a, a you know, a congratulations cake waiting for you. And the, the skill that goes into that, I, I, leaves me gobsmacked every time so that's usually the first one and that's you know cake and and soda they'll find like you know somebody will have brought like you know all your brands of you know soda or something and then when you get into town and and then it depends always where you are you know if you're in nepal or uh, pakistan or you know somewhere you'll try to find uh you know a, a restaurant and and yeah people will will um i mean we, we've had everything from Hard Rock cafes in Moscow to, um, <laughs> gosh, uh, you know, to Japanese restaurants with sake to champagne to, yeah, you know, you really do want to celebrate because it feels like, you know, sometimes you've just, you know, done. Been on top of the world. Yeah. So for our final question, we wanted to ask you how much of your success in life do you attribute to being on your own at age 16? That's such a young age. And I can imagine that's extremely difficult to have to learn to adapt to an environment. I mean, at that stage in life. And then obviously you have to adapt to all your environments as you're in such extreme measures. That's a good question. I had somebody recently ask me, you know, nature nurture, you know, which is almost another way of saying that. It's hard. It's hard for me to to, to put a number on that. The, the reason I, I find this hard to answer is I don't want somebody to feel that they didn't have a similar situation. They can't achieve great things. I, I think they can. I, th- I think the difference is that you really have to want it, and you have to know why you want why you're doing something, and have a good philosophical perspective. Of if if things don't succeed right away, you know that's the most important thing. You know, if if I had if I had to write that over again, it's like would I do it differently? It's like nobody ever says no, nobody ever says they would do things differently, which is interesting when asked those questions. And and I think part of the reason for that is because they only know one thing, and that's mm. that thing. It's like how you look back on it is how you're going to look at it going forward. You can have it, 
be a bad situation and be ashamed, or you can have it be a good situation and say, okay, I'm at peace with that. Vanessa O'Brien, thank you for joining us. For our listeners that want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Um, almost everything is at BOB online. So Victor Oscar Bravo online. Love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vanessa. And congratulations. Um, We're so excited to see what adventures you go on next. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. Great chatting to you guys. I was during that conversation typing out pieces of advice that I was already taking and mantras I want to hold on to. I love climb high, sleep low, because I found myself a lot in trying to set new goals for myself, especially coming off of a year like 2020. You know, being like, okay, you, you know, you set a goal and it's going to be 10 steps forward, nine steps back, 10 steps forward, 12 steps back, and then 10 steps forward, five steps back. But it just feels different. The idea of sleeping low and just kind of like resting, you know, right. it's it's not like it's redefining this idea of failure. And, and instead of it, it's just part of the experience. It's part of the trajectory. It's part of the journey. It's part of the climb. Right. That sleeping, it. that sleeping low is almost this time to replenish your body, to let it kind of refuel whatever that means for you. And then you're fully prepared for when it's time to get back up and start climbing again. And you're right. It changes the mentality on this entire idea of the taking the steps backwards. It's not that you're going backwards in life. It's just that you're taking this respite and allowing your body to recoup so that you're ready again to tackle it. and. I just love how much uh, there's I'm realizing how many uh, parallels there are between climbing the mountain of life and climbing an actual mountain. And that's what Vanessa has really taught us today. Also really responded to this idea. You don't fail unless you give up. And that especially having, you know, having two young women in our household at the age of my stepdaughters are, are 18 and 15 And so I'm trying to be really mindful about, you know, how I talk about my own goal setting in Mm. in a way because I hear myself kind of talking to them or even the way that talking to friends like you and I talk about goal setting all the time, Kayla. And the way that I think that we talk to other people about, you know, going after goals and or, you know, and accomplishing ideas and and new things and exploring new territory. It's always very encouraging when it's about someone else. And then when the way we talk to ourselves about these things can be very like, well, I guess I failed. So that's it. (laughs) And um, I love this idea. Like, no, unless you completely give up, you're not failing. You're just it's been this new exploration of, you know, what have I learned from this? And 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 it's in the truest sense. And and the fact that Vanessa was talking about, you know, she didn't fail climbing Mount Everest the first time. It's, oh, nope, you know, I learned a lot. So now I'm going to be ready the next time I do it. And I love kind of reframing this mindset of, of what that means. Kayla, did this conversation give you any sense of wanting to have a great adventure or is there something that you felt resonated with just even your own life or as a parent or as uh, you know a business person or what did you take away that you would want to apply to your life well I think I just realized that you can always pivot at any time in your life that just because you've achieved a certain amount of success or decided to just take this one path for this part of your life it doesn't mean you have to continue on it forever You can always pivot. You can always decide like, hey, why don't I try this? Maybe I should do this instead. That it's never, you're never too old or too young to keep just kind of 
growing and changing direction and trying Mm -hmm. to figure it out. And again, it all comes back to what we talk about all the time. It's okay to not have it all figured out. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And and Vanessa talked about once she let her ego go and not have then she stopped acting like she she knew it all. She had had it figured out. She then decided to take this next step and pivot completely and look at everything she's accomplished. I respect her so much. Do I want to end up on the bottom of the ocean someday? Probably not. But I'm going to take from her lessons and learn what I can from it. And who knows? You know, you never know. Maybe at some point in life, I'll end up somewhere I never thought I'd be. Hopefully we all do. Yeah, I love that she, you know, said she was 47 when she climbed, when she got to the top of Everest the first time. It made me think of our conversation with Dr. Edith Eager a Holocaust survivor who also is a psychologist and everything that she's accomplished. If you have not heard this episode, it's a great episode. We really encourage you to go back and listen. But when she was going to, you know, continue on her education and get another degree, you know, in psychology, she said, well, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm turning 50. I'm getting older. And then, you know, someone uh, who she respected in her industry said, well, you're going to be 50 either way. Might as well like <laughs> be a 50 year old with an extra degree. And yeah, might as well be in your you're going to we're going to be in our 40s either way. Why not be in your 40s and have climbed to the top of Everest? You know, oh. it's just it's definitely a reminder that, you know, yeah, we, we talk about getting older and in our 30s all the time. And uh, and how that feels so much farther away from our 20s when it's like this land of opportunity. But actually, you know, I feel like there's some there's good stuff to be discovered at all ages. And and we don't need to get caught up in the like idea that, you know, it's too late. It's too late to go on that adventure. It's not. It's never too late. It's never too late. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode and are as inspired by Vanessa as we are. We have another great episode next week and we'll see you then. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Producer, Melissa DeMonts. Edited by Katrina Henning. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.